Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails, a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and this month we are promoting Royfield Brown, just in general. Royfield Brown has so many podcasts to his name, it's almost hard to actually list them all off. But I'll try my best with a few. Well, there's How Jamaica Conquered the World, 10 American Presidents, The Mid-Atlantic, 1001 Conversations, and probably a lot more. So if you are interested in such projects as those, and you should be, go and check out Royfield Brown simply by searching his name in iTunes, and make sure to check out the Agora Podcast Network while you're at it. Tell them Zach sent you. Thanks, and enjoy the show. In the last two episodes, we have seen how the two sides of Irish nationalism its politically active side under Charles Stuart Parnell and its militant Republican side under the likes of James Stevens, both evolved, cooperated and declined up to the death of Parnell in 1891. In this episode, we will bring the miniseries up roughly to 1905 and introduce the characters and organisations that so shaped Ireland in the years before 1916. It is another important background investigation, and should provide crucial context for the Irish story that we're trying to tell. So I hope you'll stick with us. You are all very welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history, the 1916 Rising. One of the fascinations of historical research is to seek explanations for those apparently complex changes which overtake an entire population in the course of a few years. Historian A.T.Q. Stewart, writing in The Shape of Irish History, 2001. Something in the music 
Something in the songs, something in the atmosphere gripped me, and I seemed to be put in touch with something far back in the race. For the first time I saw the whole of Ireland. Patrick Sarsfield, IRB member, 1902. It is a hard service they take that help me. Many that are red-cheeked will be pale-cheeked. Many that have been free to walk the hills and the bogs and the rushes will be sent to walk hard streaks in far countries. Many a good plan will be broken. Many that have gathered money will not stay to spend it. Many a child will be born and there will be no father at its christening to give it a name. They that have red cheeks will have pale cheeks for my sake. And for all that, they will think they are well paid. The words of Old Woman, or Kathleen Nihulahan, from the play of the same name by William Butler Yeats and Lady Gregory, Abbey Theatre, 1902. Ireland in 1900 was a very different animal to that of its 1800 self. In the century since the 1800 Act of Union, Ireland had been advanced by political and societal modernisation to reach a point that it could, at least on the surface, be welcomed into the camp of modern Europe by the dawn of the 20th century. There still existed yawning gaps if you cared to look closer, of course. Life seemed to revolve around the hotspots of Dublin in the east and Cork in the south, as well as Belfast, which served as the beating industrialised heart in the north. Political agitation had improved the lot of the Irish. It enabled them to sit as MPs in Westminster following the passing of Catholic Emancipation by Daniel O'Connell in 1829, while the Irish farmer was increasingly able to move on from his own meagre existence and invest in his future following the land acts of the 1880s that Parnell had spearheaded. Amidst these changes came the creation of organisations dedicated to freeing Ireland of British rule by military means, but these enjoyed only sporadic support and even less success. Following the death of the political titan Parnell in 1891, the focus of British administrations, led by the Conservative Party for much of the period up to 1905, was to distract the Irish from their desire for a Home Rule Bill that would establish a Parliament in Dublin by killing them with kindness. Freedoms on religious and societal advancements would be brought into Ireland just as the products of the Industrial Revolution were finally making their way there. With the explosion in the usage of cars and railways leaking into Ireland came an increasing connectedness across the island. And while enclaves of wildness certainly remained, this opening up of the island led to a greater appreciation not just for what was going on across it, but across the wider world. The growth of print media and increased interest in the arts, Irish culture and its language seemed to suggest that Ireland was embracing a more romantic kind of nationalism, one which would see it clearly defined as a separate entity to that of London. In fact, this was exactly what was happening. The growth of Irish national feeling and the longing to seek out the things that made Ireland distinctive was a response to the perception that Ireland was becoming anglicised and in the process was losing sight of what it meant to be Irish. Ireland had fought campaigns against the British soldier, the belief now went, 
but the soldier was now replaced by the commercial agent, the British Empire product, the English language, the imperial culture, or the magnetic pull of London that forced many hundreds of thousands of Irishmen to travel for work. The beginnings of a trend was emerging in Ireland. The Irish were happy to take advantage of the benefits that being a member of the Empire family accrued them, in ease of access to goods and movement, however estranged their membership and that family was felt to be. Yet in contrast to this, a romantic attachment to the old ways began to grow, when times were simpler and Ireland's populace had nothing but its rain and farms, and when it remained its own entity detached from the world and its influences. Coupled with this longing for the old ways was a renewed interest in protecting or resurrecting the Irish language. On its death's door by the late 19th century, thanks to British cosmopolitanism and the importance of English to get by in daily life. Proud and honourable Irish men and women still spoke fluent Irish in the West or across the ruddier portions of Ireland. But for those that seemed poised to direct the country or influence its customs going forward, it seemed like Ireland had lost some of its identity in the face of the British challenge. This was a defeat far more dangerous than military occupation. For if English was to stamp out linguistic differentiation, if British culture was to subsume that of the Irish, if British sport took precedence over the Irish equivalents, then where would the justification be in claiming to be a distinct pillar of the United Kingdom? What would our children look like if they were born into this world, knowing nothing of its rich past or independent history? Would they strive to maintain Irish identity at all? In the face of such challenges and concerns, a new determination was found among the more linguistically capable and culturally aware within Ireland to halt this march towards Anglicisation by combating the British with pure, unfiltered Irishness. In 1884, the Gaelic Athletic Association, or GAA, was established to promote Irish sports like Gaelic football, hurling and camogie, while in 1893 the Gaelic League, under Dr Douglas Hyde, was established to promote the use and dissemination of the Irish language after years of neglect. Both of these groups were representative of the perceived solution of the era. When in doubt, create an organisation. But if the last two episodes have taught us anything, it's that Irish activists knew how to make that organisation work. The Irish National League had brought land reform and stood as a vital arm of the Irish Parliamentary Party in the past. With the constitutionally nationalist organisations split for the moment upon Parnell's death, groups like the GAA and the Gaelic League rushed to fill that gap. If the Irish couldn't agree on political methods, then they could agree at least on cultural and sporting heritages. Almost immediately the GAA had the result of permeating the rural communities as the Irish National League had done, and local offices and clubs for the GAA were established, bringing communities closer together under the banner of unity through sport. It had the effect of giving individuals, primarily young impressionable males, an outlet for their energies on the field which would promote Irish culture, rather than see it subsumed by another British sport like rugby or cricket. This had the effect of ensuring that an Irish identity was held onto rather than abandoned, as the 20th century dawned. It would of course be naive to present the GAA as catching on everywhere. 
Protestant males, for one, found less in common with the organisation than their Catholic neighbour. And besides, the former would already be well-versed in the still more popular British sports like rugby or football. But times were changing. Similarly, the growth of the Gaelic League didn't necessarily mean that more people wished to speak Irish, but it did lead to an increase in interest in the language and a flourishing of the arts in that native tongue as well. It was often more effective to use Irish as a vehicle for drama or through newspaper, and while it had once been seen as a mark of poverty or even ignorance to speak Irish, the Gaelic League improved the reputation of the language to the point that it was becoming a mark of one's patriotism and nationalistic identity. Soon to speak Irish was a sign of one's seriousness in the republican or nationalist movement, and this point became especially significant as time went by. Particularly for the republican elements, where once the Fenians had conversed in English and operated through that language, especially in America, Irish gave their agents a chance to prove their distinctiveness. While it was also viewed by its members as a code they could communicate through without detection, as well as a badge of honour for those that had acquired fluency. Douglas Hyde had not necessarily intended for the Gaelic League to become infiltrated by the Fenians, but he appreciated the need for maintaining the aspects of Ireland that distinguished her from her neighbours. Hyde feared the results of the extinction of the language and the kind of situation that had occurred in Scotland, with the virtual elimination of Scots Gaelic from the popular discourse. Such a death in native language would represent the end of an era for Ireland, but many also insisted it would represent a victory for the British message as well. Above all, the more anglicised Ireland was, the easier it was for British MPs to reason that change, the level that was sought after, in the form of home rule, was not necessary. Stirrings of a cultural nationalism had led individuals in London to found the Irish Literary Society in 1893, a critical follow-up from the Gaelic League which professed similar aims, but which focused on promoting Irish literary works, not necessarily in Irish, but ones that would entrench a nationalistic and cultural sense of identity within Ireland and among the Irish people, and especially those Irish expats living abroad. It was during this time that one of Ireland's greats begins to emerge onto the literary scene, William Butler Yeats. W. B. Yeats was the son of John B. Yeats, who himself was an Anglo-Irish painter and frequent traveller between Ireland and Britain. John B. Yeats's 1900 portrait of his son, sitting with an apparent awkwardness mixed with a curious sensitivity in his face, is one of the most treasured portraits that today's National Gallery of Ireland owns. It gives little indication of the younger Yeats's critical necessity in shaping the early Irish state, but what it does show is a youthful, apparently privileged individual, who seemed out of place in a nationalist atmosphere and better suited to life as an English gentleman. Indeed, W.B. Yeats's life is filled with contrasts and contradictions between his affluent upbringing and his deeply ingrained desire to stay true to his own Irish roots. Yeats wouldn't fully reconcile the two lives of Irish nationalist and Anglo-Irish poet until after the events of 1916, and even then he remains today a critically important figure for British as well as Irish literary circles. For us, he is important because he played a crucial role in the rejuvenation of the Irish arts scene. 
he was one of the major players alongside the likes of Douglas Hyde, Owen McNeil and even Patrick Pearce, who took part in publishing important works that would stand as relics of a nationalist renaissance at an uncertain time for the future of Ireland. Continuing the pattern of two Irelands developing at once, while Yeats and his contemporaries elaborated on their literary works and established important cultural bodies, most notably Dublin's Abbey Theatre in 1899, which would go on to host a plethora of nationalist and culturally influential Irish plays, other individuals were making their own mark on Irish society by forming their own organisations. Arthur Griffith was born in Dublin in 1872, and throughout his early life began to associate himself with Parnell's Irish National League, as well as the Irish Republican Brotherhood, once Parnell fell from grace. It is difficult to account for Griffith's actual beliefs at this point, since he seems to have been finding his ideological feet as events in Ireland progressed. He certainly professed himself no fan of the British establishment, travelling to South Africa during the Boer War in 1899 to voice his support for the Boers, and contributing to nationalist Irish newspapers like the United Irishman, which he helped found, as a means of spreading his message. Though he had dabbled in the Fenians, Griffiths seemed determined to plot his own course, a kind of third way between the extremism of the Fenians and collaboration of the Irish Parliamentary Party. What Griffiths wanted wasn't necessarily home rule, but a dual monarchy system inspired by that of Austria-Hungary, which would grant Ireland increased powers of autonomy but retain its status within the British Empire as an important partner of London. It seemed a strange desire to profess for an individual that established the Society of Gales in 1900, an organisation which dedicated itself to bringing the elements of Irish nationalism and republicanism closer together. But Griffith, above all, was a realist in Irish society. At least this was how he would describe himself. Sinn Féin historian Michael Laffin described him similarly. He was a gifted writer and a cantankerous politician, an obsessive compiler and manipulator of statistics, a theorist who reveled in past and present models for a future Irish state. Unlike most other radical Irish nationalists, he was hard-headed and down-to-earth in his concern for economic questions, and he showed little sympathy for the clichéd shamrocks, wolfhounds and round towers which were cherished by so many of his contemporaries. Above all, Griffith's most notable act was his establishment of Sinn Féin in November 1905. The translation of his new organisation's name varies from We Ourselves to Ourselves Alone, depending on whom you ask. But that debate aside, the creation of Sinn Féin is always seen as a highly significant event in modern Irish history. This new grouping was Griffith's brainchild, in that it represented a distinct third way in Irish politics, and sought to provide a challenge to the Irish Parliamentary Party's domination in representing the average Irishman with the Home Rule idea. Griffith thought that by providing the solution of dual monarchy, he could redefine the Anglo-Irish relationship and appeal to conservative elements in London and Unionists in Northern Ireland, both of whom remained sceptical of a parliament in Dublin. In 1904, Griffith had published his views on dual monarchy in a book called The Resurrection of Hungary, 
in which he argued for the necessity in tapping into the Irish relationship with the Empire, while ensuring that the Irish element received proper treatment from the centre in London. Griffith advocated a two-government solution with a single monarch, a kind of personal union which would grant Ireland equal status and denote that island's distinctiveness. Griffith advocated the policy of abstentionism, which entailed a seeking of votes, but a turning down of the chance to sit in Westminster once that vote had been won. This was representative of later Sinn Féin policies, but Griffith helped devise it not to topple the Westminster system, a system that any parliament or government based in Dublin would surely emulate, but to force its cooperation. Like Parnell before him, Griffith's nationalism went only so far. He was quite happy to agitate for change, but he would have been horrified, if a little perplexed, to have been associated with the kind of militarism that Sinn Féin would later be equated with. This transformation within Sinn Féin had little to actually do with Arthur Griffith himself, and much to do with the strange direction Irish history went in after 1916. But we'll get to that in a bit. Another, perhaps less savoury organisation, depending on whom you ask, but one which still played an important role alongside the others at this point, was the Ancient Order of Hibernians, a group established in the United States in 1836. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...but rapidly growing in importance and popularity by the dawn of the 20th century. In our time, it held a membership that overlapped with a number of other groups, such as Sinn Féin and the Gaelic League. The professed aims or manifesto of the ancient order of Hibernians was to combat the influence of the Protestant Orange Order, insofar as virtually all of the Ancient Order of Hibernians members were Catholic and had founded constituency offices throughout the country aimed at emphasising brotherhood, religious commonality and a sense of communal togetherness. It wouldn't be quite accurate to define them as sectarian or directly pitted against and opposed to different religious persuasions, 
it is perhaps more helpful to view them as the religious organisation of the nationalists. I understand that more groups are the last thing you need in your life right now, but the ancient order of Hibernians served as an important counterweight to Unionism's orange order in the north of Ulster. It tended to unfortunately entrench an us-versus-them mentality, but it remained critical for providing an outlet for Catholics, particularly in the Protestant-dominated north. Dermot Ferreter defined the ancient order of Hibernians as Originally a 19th century Irish-American benevolent society, now a Catholic political machine for the Nationalist Party, which attracted members because of its Freemason-style activities, its sectarianism and its rivalry with the Orange Order. I am aware that the Orange Order keeps popping up, but we're going to save them for the next episode, so push them out of your heads for the minute. The ancient order of Hibernians, to get back to them, was led by Joseph Devlin, who was ideologically allied to John Redmond of the Irish Parliamentary Party. This led Redmond to count on the influence and pervasive success of the ancient order of Hibernians, when in reality Devlin's group contained numerous ideological camps that varied in intensity, sectarianism and passion. As usual, of course, the bigger the group gets, the more divided and multi-layered it becomes. Nowadays, the Ancient Order of Hibernians website leads to images of parades and smiling faces who collectively claim to stand for Irish Americans and oppose themselves against any signs of anti-Irishness or stereotyping. Most recently, their members petitioned Amazon to remove their St. Patrick's Day t-shirts since they are viewed as promoting the stigma that all the Irish do is get drunk and fall over. I'm not going to make any comment on that. Instead, I will simply sip this beverage, which may or may not contain alcohol. The dawn of the 20th century was a strange time in Irish history. On the one hand, Ireland was certainly becoming more culturally aware and determined to distinguish itself, while on the other, there was little indication that these trends would lead to a revolution which the Fenians continued to desire. The paradox of Ireland in 1900 was that even while Griffith furthered his manifesto and individuals like John Devoy in America advanced the cause of Irish republicanism on both sides of the Atlantic, the visit of Queen Victoria to Ireland evoked little protest and largely went off without a hitch. The majority of Irish nationalists seemed of the opinion that Ireland would benefit from its own parliament, but that it should remain within the British Empire. Such a fact has prompted renowned Irish historian Dermot Ferreter, who we encountered earlier, to comment that Many Irish nationalists in 1900 thus had something of a dual attitude to British rule in Ireland. While they would not mourn its passing and while many would work towards its destruction, most were also culturally and politically comfortable with the trappings of empire. In contrast to this, we must bear in mind the clouds on the horizon the development of Irish cultural institutions like the Gaelic League and GAA, the increasing patterns of emigration which demonstrated that Irish people were not totally happy with the Anglo-Irish arrangement, the awful child mortality rates which proved that something was fundamentally wrong with Irish society, the continued maturation of the Fenian movements on both sides of the Atlantic, and the existence in Ireland of two distinct threads of patriotism, one Irish and nationalist, one somewhat British and unionist. 
The revival in Irish cultural organisation seemed to coincide with the unification of disparate strands of the Irish political nationalist institutions in 1900. Since the death of Charles Stuart Parnell and the splitting of the Irish National League and the Irish Parliamentary Party before that in 1890, Irish constitutional nationalists had been operating with one hand tied behind their backs, as the limited voice and pressure they could muster in Westminster was greatly hampered by the fact that their movement had split into three. First, there was the neutered Irish National League, formerly under Parnell, the larger Irish National Federation and then the United Irish League, the latter being designed to bring about unity in Irish society and cater to both sides of the split. When these three groups merged in 1900 there was much talk of positive lessons to be learned and a new energy of progress to be found within the movement. Reunification had been a process too complicated to get into in our limited space. To cut a long story short it was down to the hard work of men on all sides as well as making use of the joint condemnation felt by all at Britain's conduct in the ongoing Boer War, which made unification happen. Unless further clarification is necessary, we will simply call it the Irish Parliamentary Party to avoid confusion going forward, and this was led by John Redmond, the man who had led Parnell's old grouping. Additionally, it was accepted that, so successful had the United Irish League been in picking up the pieces of the two warring groups over the past decade, that it should replace both as the Irish Parliamentary Party's main organisational body. This change in how the Irish Parliamentary Party would be represented on the ground was cemented in the United Irish League's continuing activism and the old chestnut of the land reform question. In 1903, amidst a scorcher of a public relations campaign, the United Irish League was able to pressure London significantly enough to bring about an end to landlordism in Ireland, one of the most significant acts since Catholic emancipation in 1829. By achieving this act in 1903, it was called the Wyndham Land Purchase Act after Ireland's Chief Secretary, George Wyndham, and we referenced it briefly in the first episode, the United Irish League had presented itself as Ireland's most successful political arm. Significantly, the United Irish League had achieved much progress without much aid from the Fenians, or without any aid from the late Parnell. To some, this suggested that politics genuinely worked and that the next step was surely guaranteed to be home rule. To others, most notably the Fenians who had become enraptured by the Gaelic revival, the development was a worrying one, since it presented British rule as far more gentle than it was needed to be. It was harder to hate the British, the Fenians understood, when they seemed willing to allow such monumental reforms to pass. Significantly again though, the relative inactivity of the Fenians within the actions of the United Irish League in land reform did not demonstrate a total lack of action per se. In fact, the Fenians were undergoing a revival of their own, with the Irish Republican Brotherhood in particular, embarking upon a path which would transform its organisation. In a list of critical Fenians of the 19th century, John Devoy would be near the top of the list, alongside the likes of James Stevens, founder of the IRB, Michael Davitt, founder of the Land League, 
and John Mitchell, Irish nationalist, activist, repeal association member, and co-founder of the Young Ireland movement, which had launched the failed 1848 revolt. John Devoy's significance is found largely in the influence he had on Fenianism after the death of James Stevens in 1903. Devoy largely took over from Stevens in the sense that he was the leading American Fenian figure in the United States at the time. He was also the editor of the Gaelic American newspaper, and a keen pragmatist where pooling resources and promoting cooperation between the Fenians on both sides of the Atlantic was concerned. Any IRB member who decided to travel abroad to the United States would have met with John Devoy. His experience in evading British justice, in experiencing its penal servitude, and in keeping the Fenian message alive were invaluable resources to a largely declining Fenian organisation in the early 1900s. Devoy's most significant legacy is the influence he imparted upon the younger generation, and thus as a key Fenian figure he is vital to us because of the individuals that would serve the Fenians under his leadership. Perhaps the best example of such influence was Devoy's cultivation of his relationship with Thomas Clark, a tenacious Republican with a strong constitution and a determined belief in his cause. Clark had been arrested in the early 1880s for his part in the Fenian dynamite campaigns of that time, which James Stevens had rigorously opposed. Clark had then gone on to serve 15 years penal servitude, before being moved to some of the worst prison experiences Britain had to offer. The experience never dampened Clark's enthusiasm for the cause, and upon his release in 1898, Clark reimmersed himself in the Fenian organisation, not taking long to move to the United States, where he would meet John Devoy for the first time. Following that meeting, Clark became more determined than ever to effect a change in Ireland and redevoted himself to the cause of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He did well in the years in between his move to the United States and his move back home to Dublin. In 1900, he and his wife had bought a 60-acre farm in Brooklyn, the proceeds of which enabled him to purchase a tobacconist store in 1907, around the corner from one of Dublin's busiest streets, the very street upon which Patrick Pierce would one day read out his proclamation of the Irish Republic. Clark's position in the Irish Republican Brotherhood as one of its veterans was confirmed by his membership of its Supreme Council. From this position, Clark could vet any would-be recruits, he could devise the policy of the IRB going forward, and he could determine, alongside the other members of the council, how to best make use of the revival which continued to occur in Ireland. For many of the members of the IRB at the time, the growth of organisations like the GAA and Gaelic League granted them opportunities to recruit new members, as well as prove their own patriotism by getting involved in the groups and immersing themselves in those groupings' activities. As a demonstration of the legacy of Devoy, Clark, as Devoy's protege, would take the likes of Bulmer Hobson, Dennis McCullough, and Sean McDermott under his own wing. The last of these three individuals would be executed alongside Clark for their part in the 1916 Rising. Another critical figure, this one on the nationalist end of the spectrum, was William O'Brien. No relation of William Smith O'Brien, who had helped launch the doomed 1848 revolt, 
R. O'Brien was born in Cork in 1852, and in his early life he participated in the Fenian activities in the region near his homeland, which by the late 1860s had become interwoven with farmer concerns about land, and the land war that would result. William O'Brien didn't dwell long in the Fenians though, reasoning in the mid-1870s that, the gloom of inevitable failure and horrible punishment, inseparable from any attempt at separation by force of arms, had put him off Republican movements. Apparently cured of his Fenianism, he began a long and distinguished political career as a Home Rule MP, until by 1898 he contributed to Ireland in the most significant way yet by founding the United Irish League. This is the group we encountered earlier on. They were instrumental in bringing all the divided elements of Irish politics back together again. But the true significance of what O'Brien helped bring about is astounding. O'Brien capitalised upon the Local Government Act of 1898, an act which provided for local town councils to run communal affairs in place of the old landlord-dominated system of grand juries. In itself, that act was hugely significant, and some historians have labelled it a mini-home rule in that it provided control over local affairs to councils. But O'Brien's response to it is what interests us. In an atmosphere of Irish political division left behind by Parnell's departure, the creation of local councils seemed destined to flounder amidst an attitude of Irish non-cooperation. To avoid this possibility, O'Brien's establishment of the United Irish League ensured that Irishmen would have representatives on the ground to actually stand for their issues and concerns, rather than just squabbling over defunct questions of legacy. O'Brien's message of a fresh start caught on with the population, and he was able to bypass the feuding Parnellite and anti-Parnellite factions to dominate the new councils and bring about real change, the most notable of which was the aforementioned Wyndham Land Purchase Act of 1903 an act which solidified the United Irish League as the arm of the Irish Parliamentary Party, and which confirmed O'Brien at the same time as the critical voice of reason and progress in Irish politics. I do appreciate that there is a danger in boring you all to death with too many domestic or regional political issues in Ireland, rather than the more exciting stuff like revolution and such. But setting a background as we've done here is vital for later on. The characters that would have such a pivotal role in shaping Irish history in the years to come claimed their legitimacy from the actions of the individuals that agitated for change here. The reunification of Irish political nationalism and the achievements of O'Brien enabled moderate nationalists to claim that they still stood for the average Irish voice and for the cause of progress. The widespread rejuvenation of Irish culture and sport played a role in increasing the popularity of new political alternative groupings like Sinn Féin, who argued for a greater stake in the British Empire owing to Ireland's cultural distinctiveness. The Fenians and the Irish Republican Brotherhood, meanwhile, continued to bide their time and build upon the actions of men like John Devoy for the sake of their recruitment drives, while organisations like the Gaelic League and GAA granted them new opportunities to infiltrate and gain new members and delve deeper into their own sense of Irish racial identity. In short, it was a critical time in Irish history for all pillars of Irish nationalism.
While these movements were ongoing, in the case of the individual we met near the start of the episode, W.B. Yeats, his work remained vital for all aspects of nationalism and republicanism alike. When, in 1902, a play co-written by Yeats called Kathleen Nihulahan appeared, a watershed moment seemed to have been passed. The play was based on the 1798 rebellion, and focused on the idea that men should sacrifice themselves for Kathleen Nihulahan, the personification of nationalist Ireland in a female form. Kathleen Nihulahan was supposed to represent an independent Irish state, and by suggesting that men should sacrifice their lives for sovereign Ireland, that it would be a cause worthy to die for, or as the play's script itself put it, They that have red cheeks will have pale cheeks for my sake, and for all that, they will think they are well paid. It set a precedent, or at the very least played into a theme which Republicans within the Irish Republican Brotherhood were soon to willingly embrace. Within the play, a young man by the name of Michael is portrayed as being physically unable to stop himself from going out to fight for Ireland, once news of the French landing in Ireland is learned of. Despite the fact that he was soon to be married and that his mother did everything she could to stop him, all young Michael could do was see the beauty of his country and the necessity of sacrifice for that country's independence. Did you see an old woman going down the path? The father of Michael asks his other son, Patrick, after the mysterious old woman representing Ireland has left their 18th century farmhouse. I did not, replies Patrick. But I saw a young girl, and she had the walk of a queen. The play was, as it is even today, fairly effective and powerful stuff. I can only imagine the effect it must have had on an Irish populace teeming with intrigue and activism. Considering how remarkable the split was in Irish politics after Parnell's departure in 1891, It is remarkable that the whole apparatus was reunited by 1900, and that it could now boast a seriously effective body, the United Irish League, as its grassroots organisation dedicated to political nationalism's further progress. John Redmond was to be the figure that would lead this reinvigorated nationalist grouping, and it would prove quite the challenge to wield on the political stage. Redmond's foremost goal as had any Irish leaders before him, was to gain home rule for his homeland. Yet, as Redmond was to discover, the ambitions of constitutional nationalism and his home rule party were soon to be confronted with a new crisis. Kathleen Nihulahan, it seemed, was hungry for more patriots to sacrifice themselves in her name once again. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.